Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Catherine is an Associate Professor in Primary Mathematics and Deputy Director of Research within the School of Education at the University of Western Sydney. She is a multiple award-winning educator who has transformed teaching and learning in primary mathematics. Catherine's research is focused on student engagement with mathematics and issues surrounding practices that influence students' engagement. Catherine is also actively researching contemporary teaching practices through the use of digital technologies and the use of financial literacy education as a tool to engage children with mathematics. In this episode, we talked about how we can overcome maths anxiety the new ways, challenges and opportunities that teachers are now presented with in the current digital space, why pedagogical relationships are so important in mathematics classrooms, and her current research project on the impact of COVID-19. When I was a student at Western Sydney University, I was in many of her tutorials and lectures, and her approach to teaching mathematics was truly transformative. I'm so grateful to get to share this interview with you today. Please enjoy. Dr. Catherine Attard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having a chat to me today. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Um, I have been a huge fan of your work for a really long time, and we, we talked just before we hit record about the impact that uh, your teaching um, has had on my life and the lives of countless educators. And so um, at some point we'll uh, jump into a little bit about that and talk about your experience as not only a teacher but also an academic and your philosophy around um, the incredibly uh, wonderful world of mathematics. Um, But before we get started, what can you see outside of your window? Okay, I can see trees because I'm at home (laughs) and I live in the mountains, so um, I'm lucky. Fantastic, sounds beautiful. Uh, What is your coffee order? Quite possibly the most important question uh, of the interview. It's very important. I generally take a flat white. Okay, lovely. Um, And if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, who would be there? Um, Okay, well, I guess, look, I'd have to say my husband first um, because otherwise I'd be in trouble and my family, but, you know, George Clooney would be in the crowd. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But also another famous George, George Polya, who's uh, very famous in the mathematics world and, and he would be quite a fascinating man, I think, to have at the dinner table. With the other <laughs> right. Uh, what is your favourite book? It doesn't have to be uh, 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 in the topic of mathematics. Um, it could be something else. Uh, but what's your favourite book and why? Okay, I, I'm going to say I don't really have a favourite book. I like to read novels um, when I get time, and generally I, I like thrillers and um, you know murder mysteries. Uh, so yeah, that's the type of book that I like. I don't have a particular favourite. Fantastic. And and what sort of things, you, you mentioned that uh, on your days off you uh, enjoy reading books. Is there anything else that you like to do? Are you an outdoors person? Do you? Um, yeah, I do a fair bit of hiking. Um, and at the, um, at the moment, I, my current hobby is um, sewing. So I used to sew quite a lot when my kids were little and um, I really like fashion and creating things. So I've gotten back since COVID into uh, creating clothes, which is really good fun and very mathematical. Fantastic. It certainly is. It's uh, uh, wonderful to see um, uh, so many people uh, beginning to rediscover or discover mm-hmm. again hobbies. Uh, it's probably one of the the great things to come out of quite a tragic and quite a, a complicated time with our global pandemic. Mm-hmm. But it's so lovely to hear people are 
getting back to the basics and sewing and walking and having dinner with loved ones. It's, it's really yeah. fantastic. Um, just a little bit about you, um, Dr. Adard. Going back to the beginning, what was your experience like at school? Were you, did you always love maths? No, I didn't. <laughs> um, look, I was quite neutral, I guess, in the primary years towards mathematics. And then as I went through secondary, I actually began to um, not dislike it, but I, I definitely didn't enjoy it. And I would probably describe myself as a disengaged student, one of those quietly disengaged students. I, I had the ability and I was always in the top classes, but um, it wasn't something that I enjoyed at all. It really wasn't until I got into my um, undergraduate degree as a mature age student that I started to really appreciate mathematics and see, I guess, the creative potential of mathematics. Um, and, and I really developed a very deep passion for it then. Fantastic. Uh, my understanding is that you um, initially out of school, you're a bank teller, not an academic. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I worked at, um, initially it was the Bank of New South Wales and then it turned into Westpac and, and um, I did lots of jobs in, in the bank, uh, not just bank teller, but I do remember when I was a bank teller, um, I used to get tired of waiting for the adding machines at the end of the day when we used to balance uh, all our cash and um, I would just stand there and I would actually just add it all up in my head <laughs> and then uh, do mathematics and I would be quicker to balance uh, than the other tellers who were using the adding machine. So um, I kind of have an affinity with numbers anyway, um, but I never imagined in those days that I would end up doing what I'm doing now. And so what I'm curious about what it was um, that made you uh, go back or go into teaching from that profession because uh, it seems uh, it apart from the obviously the obvious use of mathematics is for counting up money at the end of the day there doesn't seem to be too much of a link between being a bank teller and a primary school teacher so uh, can you explain a little bit about the process that transitional process yeah. look I, I I got married you know quite young and I had three children quite young and um I, I started to do lots of different things. I had lots of hobbies and then I would learn something and teach it, learn something and teach it. And people st used to st uh, start to suggest to me that, oh, why don't you just go into teaching? You're you know, a natural. And I, I always went, no, 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 I haven't been to university. I'm not smart enough. And I, um, I had a lot of, um, I didn't have much self-confidence. But um, eventually I did um, dip my toe in the water with university when I saw a little advertisement one year in the newspaper, local newspaper about from Western Sydney University, which was UWS back then. And it was about um, being able to just take up a subject in a course and just pay fees and just try it. And I said to my husband one night, I really, really want to do this because I was struggling with um, keeping mentally stimulated. And so um, I, I rocked along to university. I was nervous as anything. And by this stage, like I was in my 30s. Um, and um, I just I did this unit on child psychology and it was based in early childhood education. And um, I worked really, really hard and I topped the whole course. And I just thought, oh, wow, actually, I think I might be smart enough to do this. And so I then enrolled in... Um, an undergraduate degree and I initially enrolled in early childhood uh, and I don't know what I was thinking because I started it and I hated it and uh, <laughs> I changed to primary and as soon as I got into primary I absolutely loved it and I just thought this is where I belong and you know five years before I would never have imagined that I would I would actually become an educator and you know I haven't stopped since like I haven't stopped learning I haven't stopped um, I feel like I've been running <laughs> to catch up but um, I 
it's just changed my life completely. Wow, that's that's really wonderful to hear, and also to hear that um, there's not always a straight trajectory in our lives. I mean, you ended up going down one path and changed your mind and tried some different things, and it took a bit of time to find out what your passion was, and it's really wonderful to see now i mean you look at your um your list of publications on your website and your profile and the amazing awards that you received and it's um it, it it's really quite incredible but to see where that all started is, uh, is is really really interesting so thank you so much for sharing that um i'm curious about um earlier on you talked about you in class you were quietly disengaged um are you why do you think that was? Did you did you feel like you weren't particularly suited to the way that the schools were uh, school was structured? Did you not feel like you belonged? Did you not have a relationship with your teacher, or was it all a little bit of probably all of that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, um, it's interesting. I yeah, I, I I didn't have a relationship with my teachers, I, and I remember it was very disjointed, um, and it was very textbook based. It was super traditional, which was typical in those days. Um, yeah. you know, everything was taught from a textbook. You'd be copying off the board the whole lesson. And to me, that was just, it was boring. Um, you, I, you know, I never felt I could ask a question. I was quite shy um, and believe it or not, I still am. Um, so, um, you know, those shy students don't want to put their hand up in class. And even now, you know, I, I kind of, I don't like to speak unless I have something worthy of saying. And, and um it took me a long time to gather the confidence to actually answer questions, even at university. But where at high school, I just, I just didn't have it in me, and I just, it was boring. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't. I, look, I mean, I couldn't agree more. My experience in high school was was really similar. Like we'd moved to a new country, we'd moved from the UK. Um, I absolutely adored my primary school teacher in England. We moved to. Uh, Australia moved into high school I felt like I didn't know anyone had no relationships my maths teacher hated maths and so uh, there's not a coincidence there that I uh, grew up or I moved through high school without a uh, an understanding of this the subject which is by far my favorite subject to teach now mm. um, so it's it's interesting all of these schools are very complicated places and there's so I'm thinking now how many students um, are sitting in the school that I work in or, or schools in neighbouring suburbs that are quietly disengaged, that are waiting to find that thing they're passionate about. Um, do you think this, uh, thinking about your experiences in school, do you think that's changed how you approached becoming a teacher or being a teacher? Were you more aware of those students in your class? Um, I, in, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, that gap between me finishing school and actually going to university kind of wiped a lot of those memories that wasn't yeah. fresh in my mind. So yeah. it, there was a, a huge benefit in going to university as a mature age student because yeah. I wasn't really re like replicating what I'd experienced, which, which happens with a lot of teachers. Mm -hmm. They tend to, um, when, they, when they're beginning teachers and they get into schools, they go into this survival mode and revert to teaching the way that they, were, they experienced mathematics teaching in their own lives. Uh, so for me, that gap was really good because it kind of erased some of those memories. Um, and it was primary, not secondary. I mean, my primary school, I, I don't have any strong memories of mathematics in primary at all um, and again probably because it was all textbook based there was nothing very exciting I didn't hate it but I didn't love it either and that's the case I think with a lot of our student population is they don't hate it 
Yeah. They don't love it. They just do it because it's there. And I think one of my journal articles has a similar, um, has a title that was a quote, a direct quote from a student who said, uh, you know, I don't like it, I don't love it, but I do it and I don't mind. And that was really me as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did it. But then I did mind it when I went into secondary school. I was in the top class, but I just didn't like it. Yeah, wow. I, I don't know what's worse worse um hating a subject or not even knowing that it existed um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. feeling so neutral about it that you know it's, you don't feel um, anything yeah just, just engagement um I, i'm curious what what's the best uh math lesson that you've ever taught or seen it could be like i said one that you've taught and you just felt like your kids were there they were in the moment or it could be one that you've observed with in your many years in academia is there anyone that really stands out to you and why there's no one lesson, but I um, look. I recently um, had some teaching in a school um, during COVID. Um, I took the opportunity because I wasn't travelling as much, and I, you know, I was basically housebound. Um, I, I ha had an opportunity to go and actually work in a school one day a week. And I permission from the university etc but I basically um, became a teacher again one day a week I got employed by the Department of Education I had to do an interview online <laughs> which was pretty funny um, and and I got to actually get in front of kids and teach and model lessons and work with teachers um, that led to uh, two or three weeks ago me doing some um, demonstration lessons at a conference where we brought in children and I actually taught some lessons and now what was best about it was that, you know, we, um, I kind of had developed a relationship with these particular students in the weeks leading up. So I was able to design a lesson that suited their particular needs for each of the groups that came in. And so we started each lesson with number talks, which I think are, are absolutely fantastic tools if you do them well. Yeah. And then we actually got into some problem solving and investigation in both of the lessons because there were two different class groups and we had a lot of reflection all the way through. And, and to me, those are the beautiful lessons, the lessons where you can actually allow children to, to uh, reason, to, to use all those working mathematically skills and build their confidence and actually get them to think um, outside the square. You know, instead of giving them a whole lot of questions that have one right answer, we're asking them to use a whole lot of different skills and draw on different skills to solve really good mathematical problems. And, and to me, those are the best lessons. And I'm so happy I got to actually um, work with kids. You know, after so many years of not being in a classroom, um, the joy of teaching children is just something that you can't describe. Um, and it made me remember why I do what I do. Absolutely, that's a that's a wonderful story, and and um, just to, it, it, you're in such a privileged position to be able to keep your foot feet in both camps, so in both academia yes. and also the day to day teaching in a classroom. It sounds it sounds wonderful. Um, do you? I just sorry, just wanted to ask you a question about uh, maths anxiety. Um, do you think there's a lot of teachers out there? Um, I myself am one of them um, that get really nervous about teaching mathematics. And and what do you think needs to be done to try and repair the perception of mathematics? Because yeah, it scared the life out of me when I knew that I had to actually teach mathematics until I sat in your lectures. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
I, I think, yes, there are a lot of people that, that feel anxiety about teaching mathematics, and that stems from their own experiences in school um, and, and the pressures of society, I guess, on, on mathematics. And um, in terms of, of addressing it, I think it's critical that we do address it with every single teacher. There are different ways that um, and different things that we can do to address anxiety, but I think we have to be open and honest and actually acknowledge it. Yes. Um, we have to delve into, well, why are we anxious? What, what's happened in a person's life? And there's, there's different strategies. There's a thing called bibliotherapy um, where <clears throat> teachers are given some kind of a reading around maths and maths anxiety and then it kind of leads them to talking about what their issues are. I often do this exercise with teachers where <clears throat> we have sentence stems and the first one is, um, I can or can't do mathematics because. And then the second one is, I like slash dislike mathematics because, and the third one is mathematics is. And um, I mean, that's a good tool to use with students, but also with teachers. And it often leads to teachers actually thinking about what it is that I don't like and why it is, what why I don't like mathematics. Uh, I, th I think that's the first hurdle. And then it's about getting teachers to experience success using good practice. Yeah. So um, I think collegiality is really important. It can't be underestimated. Like we have to work together. We have to work in teams. Schools have to work um, as communities of practice. So where in a school, I, I would like to see in every school some kind of an agreement about what math, effective mathematics education looks like in your school. And that's got to come from the top down. Um, so that what I'm saying there is that it doesn't need to be, it can't be pushed down to teachers, but it's got to be supported by the top. And it's got to, it, the principal has to also be part of those conversations and the school executive have to be part of those conversations. So everybody has to have some investment in this agreement about what effective mathematics looks like in a school. And then it's about, well, how do we support each other to build capacity? And so that could be working in, in stage teams, grade teams. It's about watching each other teach, talking about what, you know, effective lessons look like. Um, lots of different strategies, but, it, but it's got to be that community of practice where everybody is using the same language. And when somebody new comes into that community, they're brought into the use of that language and those shared understandings within that school. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of um, staff turnover in, in schools. Um, and so you might have a great year where everybody works on maths and everybody does the same thing. And then all of a sudden new people start to come in and, and people go out and then it gets watered down over time. So how do you sustain that community of practice yeah. where we're all helping each other and we're all talking the same language about good mathematics teaching? Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important. And a lot of our, um, a lot of our perception about mathematics comes from primary school and then high school then from university then from um ourselves as classroom teachers so um it's uh our relationships with math with mathematics starts from a very young age and it's really i'm sure you um, would agree that by the time students come to your lectures they have had all sorts of different types of experiences with this with this subject um i'm I'm just curious, uh, what do you hope that your students gain from your lectures? Um, how do you know if you have been successful at the end of a, of a subject? Look, 
when I see my students, at the moment I'm teaching uh, in the postgraduate space, so I've actually got a course that's developed for practising teachers to become experts in, in teaching mathematics and leaders of teaching mathematics. And what I, I, I know that I'm successful when they go away and they actually implement things in their schools and they come back and they talk of the success. So they talk about change happening in their schools um, change that they're implementing as potential leaders of mathematics, but also the impact on students. Uh, so, so you've got an impact on the teachers around them and the impact on their students. And similarly, with the, when I used to teach, um, un, not undergraduate, masters of teaching, so pre-service teaching teachers, um, I used to hear stories and I still hear stories and I still work with some of the um, the people that I taught as pre-service teachers, in fact, some of them are doing research now, um, and to hear their stories of what happens in the classroom because of how they learnt to teach mathematics uh, is really satisfying, but tells me that I have had some success. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, why do you argue, though, uh, that for positive change to occur in mathematics, we need to put the brakes on and stop and recalibrate? Do you think at some point we have lost our way in how we are teaching the subject. What do you think we need to do to get back on track? Yeah, and look, I think um, COVID was a really good time to actually make a stop and recalibrate. Um, it, it disrupted things uh, so much that it, it was an opportunity and I, and I really hope that we make the most of that opportunity. Um, yes, I think we, we had to to think about well what are we doing and what can we be doing differently because obviously things the world is changing the curriculum is not really changing um, how do we bring that curriculum back into alignment with what our students today need and look to some extent that's happening we've got a review of the curriculum um, at state level at national level and there are some interesting arguments happening at this moment in time around whether things like Problem solving and reasoning should be in the curriculum or shouldn't be. Um, I believe it should be uh, for the record. Uh, but there are people from outside mathematics education trying to say, no, back to basics, drill and kill, we'll, we'll do the job. Um, and it won't. Um, so, so that's why I thought we had, to, we had to stop. We had to think if it's not working, it's okay to pause and reflect and do something different. And you can do that at the school level as well. If it's not really working, if things are just humming along, but you know, you're not really getting the best out of your students or your teachers, we should stop and reflect and think, well, what can we do differently? It doesn't have to be something um, big. It can be just a small change in how a school programs or um, you know, how they deliver their lessons, or what resources they use. Um, so a small change can lead to uh, a big impact for students and the way that they experience mathematics. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has really caused us just to stop and think and ask some of these essential questions. And uh, while it has been and continues to be uh, tragic for so many people, um, it is kind of like a forced pause where we have to stop and think, okay, like why are we here? What are we doing? I think that's really, really important. Um, why are pedagogical relationships so important in the mathematics classroom? And how can we as educators um, begin to build some of those pedagogical relationships? 
I, I think um, it's easier for pedagogical relationships to develop in primary schools. I'll put that, um, yep. I'll say that first because we've got the same group of students in front of us day in and day out. Yep. They're really important because if we don't know our students as learners of mathematics, if we don't acknowledge what they bring to the classroom, if we don't have those deep conversations with them about themselves as learners of mathematics, then it's not possible to design teaching and learning activities that, or those pedagogical repertoires um, that fit that group of learners. Yeah. So, you know, every year we have a different group in front of us as primary teachers. Um, we can't be teaching in exactly the same way every year. So say we're a year three teacher and, you know, we've been teaching year three for 10 years. I would expect that every year I teach year three, it's going to be different because the students in front of me are different. Yeah, so yeah. that's a pedagogical relationships. We want our students to understand and feel that their teachers know them as individual learners. Um, if a student doesn't feel that someone cares about their learning and understands their needs, they're not going to engage. I mean, and that's exactly why I was disengaged when I was in high school. Um, my teacher didn't care. Yeah, uh, mine. yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the foundation of engagement. And if you think about it in a similar way to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that basic foundation are those relationships. And without those, you can't, you can't design teaching and learning to fit your learners it doesn't work so you could have all the bells and whistles in the world but if they're not pitched at the correct level or you know in the way that they need to be for those particular students then they're not going to work yeah absolutely and and you talked about um you mentioned briefly engagement uh, would you mind spending a little bit of time uh unpacking some of your amazing resources that you have um uh, because I have, I've tried them uh, in my class. It's obviously your website is engagingmaths.com. The, the focus is on engagement for anyone that's wondering. Um, but would you mind spending a bit of time unpacking uh, what your goals are with that website and what you hope that teachers get and students get from it? Yeah, look, it's mainly aimed at, at te educators, teachers, but I mean, I think, I think um, the general public or parents would probably get a little bit out of it. Um, and so I basically, you know, when something starts to bother me or <laughs> I think about something that, you know, might be useful for teachers, I write a blog about it, I put activities up there. Um, I try and um, bridge that gap between research and practice. Yeah. Um, because, you know, everything I talk about is based on research, whether it's my own research or the research of others. It's not just, um, I'm not just pulling it out of thin air. Um, yeah. Everything is evidence-based. Um, and so what I try and do is, is find the practical implications of my research and the research of others and say, here, this is what it looks like and what it could look like in your classroom. So my website's got a lot of activities on it, but I've also written books like the, the Thinker's Key book, um, yes. which is one of my favourites, yeah. where, um, you know, I've got some open-ended tasks that they promote critical and creative thinking in mathematics, and they're different to a, a typical mathematics task. Yeah. So, you know, it's surprising for kids because they feel a bit creative. It's a bit more fun. It's interesting, but it also makes them think really hard. And, you know, that's what engagement's all about, is that thinking hard and um, working hard and feeling good about yeah. doing and learning mathematics. So um, I'm, that's what I use the blog for. I mean, I don't don't write on it as nearly as often as I uh, used to, um, but then there's quite a lot of posts up there that, 
uh, don't need to be rewritten. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, I think that some of them should be timeless. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, one of your activities, um, which I remember uh, doing with my students, is planning a birthday party. Uh, sorry, sorry, and, and and yes, an end of a year birthday party or a class party, and um, I I remember uh, posing the, the problem to the students, and and about forty five minutes later, one student asked me, "When are we going to start doing maths?" And I said, "We are, we are doing maths. This is our maths lesson." And um, it was such a wonderful activity, and there are so many others. Um, so many other wonderful resources that you've created and ideas, but it's just incredibly simple, that use of mathematics in everyday life. It doesn't need to be a, an allocated time. It definitely doesn't need to come out of a textbook. It's something which is useful and rich. And then when I explained to the students that we were actually going to be planning a party at the end of the year, it was incredibly meaningful for them. And some of the work that they produced was just incredible. We had these wonderful diagrams. We had discussions about... Um, about division, how many pieces of cake we'd need for a class, a discussion about dietary requirements and healthy eating, and it was it was wonderful. And the amount of it that really that was quite early on in my career, and it really opened my idea, uh, my eyes to the possibility and the richness of mathematics. And um, there were so many uh, components or so many syllabus outcomes that we were able to to address. It was really wonderful. And it, and I think one of the most meaningful things about um, for me about your work is that maths is everywhere and maths is this wonderfully diverse and rich subject and I I just wish my eyes had been open to that when I was in primary school and so my goal is to try and turn my uh, my, my poor experience in high school in mathematics to and uh, to be able to um, help my students see the wonder and the beauty in such an incredible subject so thank you so much for that your resources are really amazing and they're so useful which is great um, you can actually use them with your class so really really wonderful thank you so much and um i'm actually thinking now how i can do more of them when we go back uh next term with our class so i will keep you posted um we, we talked a little bit about uh the current climate with with covid19 um would you mind spending a little bit of time unpacking your current research project on the impact of covid19 and technology enabled teaching across the various curriculum areas yeah, yeah. I, um, I've been working with a colleague of mine, Professor Kath Holmes, at university, and just before COVID hit, we had a book launch. We wrote a book about the effective use of technology <laughs> mathematics classrooms where we, we actually collected case studies of teachers from preschool all the way to year 12, uh, and they were teachers who were um, viewed by their colleagues as um, effective users of technology. And so we went in and we... Um, <clears throat> observed their lessons, we interviewed them, we interviewed their students, we interviewed leaders in their schools to find out, well, what, you know, what do you need to have uh, effective use of technology? Um, and we came up with a theoretical model. Now, um, it was just, I don't know if it was good or bad timing that COVID hit, because of course that affected the, um, the dissemination of our research and our book, but at the same time, it provided another opportunity to go back and do some more research and find out, well, what were teachers doing during the COVID shutdowns? Um, because we, we use that then to, to test our theoretical model. And um, I know this is um, a podcast and you can only hear me, but I do have a model. <laughs> uh, and so basically that if you imagine that the model is a square pyramid, so it's a three-dimensional model, um, and at the very base of the pyramid are the influences 
on technology integration in schools. So the things that we need to consider before we even think about teaching maths with technology, and those things are context, culture, community, and commitment. And so they're, they're quite complex. It's understanding um, your school and what you have available and of the teachers, the attitudes of the leaders, all of those things. And that's what we're researching at the moment. Once you understand your context, then you have to think about four important areas. First of all, you think about the mathematics that you're going to teach, okay, and how it, you're going to teach it through technology, if in, in fact you are going to use technology. Then you need to think about um, the tools that you have at hand. So there's... Um, and um, so, for example, if you have a one-to-one -one devices, are those the best way to teach that mathematics or to get students learning about the particular concept that you're teaching. Um, then there's a pedagogy and you can see these are all very much uh, connected, which is why they form a, a three-dimensional model. And the last thing you need to think about is student engagement, because why use it if the students are not going to be engaged and the lessons are not going to be engaging? So if you think about those four things, the mathematics, the tools, the pedagogy and the engagement, uh, that means that the way that you teach with technology is going to be unique to your classroom and yep. to your school. Often teachers want a recipe that's going to be a one-size-fits-all, you know, what's the best use of technology? But it all depends on your context, on you, on the way that you think about using technology and your affinity with technology and your skills with technology, but also your understanding of mathematics. Yeah and how that, that technology can actually enhance the way that you teach the mathematics. And you, you've got to recognise the potential in the tools that you have at hand. It's very, very complex, yeah. but it's um, really rewarding research because ultimately I want to, to come up with a model, you know, these types of models that will help teachers consider how they use any type of technology circumstance. You know, typically we use professional learning on um, either a, a particular device or a particular piece of software but technology is um, moving so quickly we can't possibly keep up so if we think about these basic things um, you know the, the influences plus also those four elements uh, regardless of what we have at hand we should be able to come up with something really good in terms of using it effectively in maths classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it, it's fascinating, and I'll, I'll I'll put a link to obviously all of your resources on uh, the website and also um, on the podcast feed, so people can check out some of your research and keep updated. Um, I do just have one question. Um, uh, just before we begin to wrap things up, I do want to be respectful um, of your time. Um, would you mind sharing your thoughts on how we actually assess mathematical competency, um, and also how do we? Um, I mean, what does great formative assessment or summative assessment in mathematics look like in a classroom? I think because for so many years, it, in my example anyway, when I was in school, it was about the test at the end of the topic. Um, but how do we begin to move a little bit more towards a more accurate uh, view of assessment in mathematics? But that's a really good and complex... A very big question, yes. <laughs> it's a massive question. So let's talk about the different types of assessment first. Um, and as I said, um, you know, the traditional form of assessment in mathematics is a, a test, whether it's at the end of a topic or at the end of a term or whatever. Um, one of the issues with those traditional tests is that they don't often test 
working mathematically. So they don't often test reasoning. Um, they um, often just rely on a right or wrong answer and sometimes some working out, you know, yes. a process. But sometimes it can get to the right answer with the wrong reasoning, if that makes yes. sense. Absolutely. So I, look, pen and paper tests are okay sometimes, um, provided they ask students to explain their thinking. You know, in primary school, it could be, how do you know? As simple as that. Yeah. How do you know? Um, or explain why this answer is correct or whatever. Um, so that's pen and paper test. But there are lots of other ways to get to, to student um, yeah. understanding, uh, formative and summative. So I, I like the idea of using rich tasks as well because for formative and summative, uh, because if you find a rich task that's open, it allows every single learner to show what they can do. Um, it doesn't put a limit on it, whereas a pen and paper test puts a limit on what kids can show you. Um, if it's more open-ended yeah. uh, and, and a richer yeah. task, it means that, you know, the really high achievers can show you what they can do. But also at the other end, um, you know, students who have lower ability can still achieve some success. Sometimes when we look at assessment data, we look at what they can't do rather than what they can do. Um, and, and sometimes a piece of assessment shows us a lot about what, what students can do, but we don't actually ever focus on it. Yeah. So, um, you know, the topic of assessment is, is really interesting and complex, and there are issues around what we do with assessment data that I think are almost more important than how we assess yeah. You know, what are we doing with the data? Yeah. When are we collecting it and for what purpose? Um, if we're collecting data at the beginning of a unit of work or at the beginning of a topic, um, and if we want that data to uh, inform our teaching, then we kind of need to do it a fair way ahead of the teaching of the topic because how do we then design yeah. the teaching and learning activities to address the specific needs of these learners if we haven't had time to look at the work samples, to identify misconceptions and think about how we're going to address them. Yeah. Um, there are so many issues around assessment. Um, you, yeah. know, you can talk all day about it, really. Yeah, re really, really interesting. One of the things that, that I do uh, with my children, one of the, the uh, ways that I implement formative assessment is just using different colour post-it notes. Yeah. And so I'll have, um, for example, if we're looking at time, uh, what do I know now about time? What questions do I have? So it could be a how, what, when, where, uh, why, and also at the end, what have I learnt? And those, and, and all I do is I just walk around at the end of the week and take a photograph. I get the students to write their name on different colour post-it notes. And that gives me some idea, um, at least in part, of which students have shifted and also which students need a little bit of extra help. But um, assessment is an incredibly complicated uh, discussion. Um, that's a whole podcast in itself. Um, but um, I, I really, it would have been a miss of me to ask some of your thoughts on that. So thank you um, for, for taking the time to unpack that. Um, Dr. Adard, just um, uh, wrapping up, um, because like I said, I do want to be respectful of your time. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, yes, most definitely. So my Twitter handle is at, uh, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> at, at Adard underscore C. Um, so I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, Instagram, uh, sometimes I post mass photos on Instagrams. More often than not, it's photos of really good meals. But <laughs> um, Instagrams for, yeah. And look, I think I have a, a group on face, a Facebook group 
and it's called, I think it's called Engaging Maths. And I, I invite my grad students to join that. But, I mean, if anyone's, you know, really passionate about teaching maths, you can certainly apply to join that group. Right. Um, yeah, and look, I, if anyone's interested in um, further study in maths, the grad cert is a really good opportunity because it's it's online. Um, we have synchronous meetings and really good discussions, but it's uh, online and you can do it either over one year or two years and it's um, a really nice way to, to network with other teachers as well. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's wonderful to talk to you and... Um, your, the, the time that I spent in your lectures and tutorials um, really helped change my mind about maths and so I'm incredibly grateful and um, it's by far, for me by far the most um, exciting subject that I get to teach now. So thank you for everything that you're doing in that space and um, please continue to produce all of those wonderful resources because um, I know there's lots of teachers out there that, that need them. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.